Hi guys, I hope this sounds okay. I've dropped my computer on the microphone a lot, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, okay, so here's my opinions on White by Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, personally, I think it's really cool to write a whole book complaining about how people won't stop complaining and it's provocative to be the guy who changes the subject because he doesn't care about something and then the subject that he chooses to talk about instead is how annoying it is that people care so much about that thing. So in Brett Easton Ellis's new book of essays, he states his mission is to present an aesthetic, things that are true without having to be factual or immutable. So since he's only interested in aesthetics, I'd like to engage Brett Easton Ellis on that level, which is fine, because I'm really only like superficially familiar with his work. Aesthetically, Brett Easton Ellis looks like Philip Seymour Hoffman if Philip Seymour Hoffman got really into Jordan Peterson. Uh, aesthetically, Brett Easton Ellis is like if Carl Rove decided to become friends with Diplo. Uh, Brett Easton Ellis has three names, one for each time I have looked at a picture of him and thought, is that Carl Rove? It's kind of funny that Brett Easton Ellis is involved in all these fashion campaigns, but he dresses like he gets all his clothes from a subscription box. Maybe that's uh, like something that happens to you when you have a podcast. No offense to the host of this podcast. I think that his chosen uniform of the blazer over pullover hoodie speaks to uh, like a desire to appear impish and bad, but still part of the establishment. And I I mean, I, like, I bet when he's sitting in his Eames chair drinking his evening Metamucil, he imagines himself using a turn of phrase so languid and devilish that William F. Buckley Jr. raises a martini glass to him in hell, and in his mind, their glasses clink, and it sounds like America. On January 4th, Brett Easton Ellis tweeted that he liked the movie Venom. This is actually, I kind of like this. I just like the tweet. He tweeted a, like a shot from the movie with the caption, I liked Venom, and nothing else. I'm sure this book of essays will find a home among people who can't imagine another person's experiences and problems as anything other than an annoyance or a distraction. And, I mean, that's a pretty vigorous demographic. Overall, I'm just wondering what part of the conservative media landscape he's going to drift into in the next five years. Uh, I feel like, I don't know, I'm curious... I know Brett Easton Ellis likes to say that he triggers millennials, but I honestly struggle to put together more than a couple thoughts about him. As a closer, I don't even really have anything except maybe, like, Brett Easton Ellis is becoming aware that his perspective isn't provocative anymore, and I hope he has fun becoming a regular on Joe Rogan's podcast. It's The Simpsons opening credits, but I'm Bart. Scrawling, I will not draw naked ladies on the chalkboard over and over until the bell rings, at which point I float out the door on my skateboard. Bart still looks like Bart, but somehow inside I know it's me. At the Springfield nuclear power plant, my dad, Homer, is picking up a glowing green rod with very big tongs. My dad isn't actually Homer, though he produced The Simpsons and King of the Hill. When I went to therapy, the shrink asked if this recurrent dream, which I'd had throughout my teenage years, ever made me feel bad. She worried that my dad's success depressed me, the fear of never measuring up held me back. Not really, I told her. It's a pretty nice dream. I tried, after the dream started, to learn to skateboard in real life, but I never got good, and now it's just something I do as a party trick. 
I can always tell when Brett wants me to do it. It's always the point at the party where everyone is trashed, horny, and wanting to fight. That's just when I sneak into our linen closet, get my board, and skate right into wherever we are. Sometimes knocking into people, but it's always on accident, and I never hurt anyone. If anything, I hurt myself, kick-flipping into the pool. I'm not an objectively funny person, but I think Brett brings it out in me. You haven't found your audience. You put stuff online, but online is victim-mongers and people who want something from you, he says. We understand each other since we'd both been born rich. Rich people know they're not victims, he'd say. I agree with Brett, but his way of approaching things annoys me, and not just because of his politics. He doesn't think Trump is bad. He thinks Trump is interesting, a catalyst. I think Trump is a mentally unfit autoimmune disease. Brett wants to choke people with his opinions. If you think we're all so stupid, I ask him, then why write books? Who are you writing for? The first bit I did that Brett really liked, I'm pretending to scroll through Instagram, and I'm like crying or pretending to cry about Instagram making me feel insecure and jealous. The caption for that one was broken on the inside, the video filtered in black and white. Another thing I do is make videos about taking my blood pressure, which I have to do each morning. I call it my blood pressure. The new place. He's tried the new place, the one Honey Buns always goes to and insists is better, where all the socialists and SJWs hang out, their boobs falling out of their overalls, writing their failed poetry, pretending to play chess while smoking cigarettes, applying to jobs at publishing or auction houses, the kind of work failed Vassar grads settle into when they realize they just don't have it. He's really tried it the new place. He's been there three times. But Starbucks is better. It's not even close. Even the tattooed hotties who work at the new place would probably admit this if, say, he walked in there with an axe, screaming, demanding at the top of his lungs, which one is better, Starbucks or this shithole? You really going to stand there and tell me this place? You don't even have a fucking restroom key. And then he'd swing the axe killing them all, splattered blood on the whipped cream. Ha <laughs> ha. Get a hold of the yourself there, Brett. It's just coffee. Grabbing the backpack he keeps by the door, Brett exits his apartment and takes the stairs down to ground level. And he doesn't get why people are always hating on chains so much. Honeybuns never goes to chains. He hates them. Just last week, they'd been walking home from some awful dinner theater, Honeybun's idea, not his, and they had just been starving. The food at the theater had been terrible, the alcohol strong. Brett wanted McDonald's, but Honeybun's wouldn't even set foot in it. Started talking about how McDonald's wages aren't high enough, that they treat people like animals. Brett highly doubts this. He's never seen a McDonald's employee held up by their tail and beaten across the face for getting into the dry food cupboard. Ha ha, ha, ha ha. He exits his apartment building, takes a left, and heads toward Starbucks. The new place is across the street. Even from here, he can smell the lavender they put in everything, and the bergamot. Jesus, what the fuck is coming to this country? He'd rather drink cigarette sludge. And as he gets further and further away from the new place, he feels a sense of order returning to his sensible body. Honeybuns is always telling him he has no idea what it's like to have grown up knowing the world is evil. 
this morning while Honey Buns got ready for work and Brett sat in bed, absentmindedly looking at his tablet. Honey Bun had said Brett had no idea what it was like to have your first political experience be the Democrats just handing the 2000 election to George W. Bush, just handing it to them like a goddamn Kroger coupon. He said Brett's generation has given up on the world and the millennials are going to be the ones who have to fix everything. Well, Brett has no idea what a Kroger coupon is. He assumes Honey Buns was referring to something on the internet. Brett hates the internet. But he has to admit he feels genuinely hurt by what Honey Buns has said. Brett hasn't given up on the world. He embraces it. He approaches Starbucks, gets closer, feels the AC from here, sees the sensible people sitting inside on their sensible phones, their sensible laptops, conducting business, dry-humping life like the middle school dance that it is. There are 200 Starbucks within a two-mile radius of the apartment Brett shares with Honey Buns. This is the 193rd Brett's been to within the last 193 days. Standing in front of the glass door and making sure no one's by it. He's not a psycho. After all, Brett takes the axe out of his backpack, smashing the door, just like the 192 others, yelling, Give me my goddamn Frappuccino! Just because it's better than the new place doesn't mean he likes it. Kim Kardashian West's maternity suite at Cedars-Sinai Medical Institute featured flooring by Shaw Contract Group, multiple living rooms furnished to adhere to a custom slate and rose color scheme, and a plenitude of luxury accommodations that would have embarrassed anyone who cared enough to worry what two worldwide media stars might think of him. Kim had given birth the previous day. I thought at first I might be imposing on Kim immediately following the delivery of her first child, but the suite was large enough that we were able to stay well out of her way. Kanye himself did not seem anxious to get back to his wife's or his daughter's side. I'm sure they had plenty of hired hands doing the dirty work for them. I can't imagine ever taking a newborn baby under my care but if I did, I'm sure I would prefer to enlist the help of professionals. As soon as I arrived, Kanye took my hand in his and leaned in for a hug. I don't socialize with rappers often, but I can dap one up when called upon to. I'm sure this will surprise some of my more politically conscious readers. Don't be so quick to assume that someone my age with my background and my politics, might demonstrate some command of hip-hop etiquette. Not only did Kanye dap me up, he poured me a tumbler of Grey Goose as soon as I sat down. This would prove to be the first of many drinks we'd share that evening and into that night, which only ended when Kanye decided he had said everything he had hoped to say to me. I wouldn't have had it any other way. Before Kanye said a word about the project he'd invited me out to discuss, he complimented my outfit. I wasn't wearing anything particularly stylish, just a corduroy blazer over an athletic crewneck sweatshirt. 
but despite his meticulous eye for design and unabashedly materialistic bent, two traits of his character that I had always admired. Kanye wasn't impressed so much by the quality of my attire, but the presentation. I looked, he told me, like a man who knew he could pull off whatever he decided to wear. I was flattered, but still, I knew what he meant, and I told him so. I learned early on that I would never have to worry about impressing anyone as long as I let them know I expected them to impress me first, I said. Most people would have been confused or even appalled by this remark. But Kanye only nodded slowly, betraying only the smallest suggestion of a smile. I knew we would understand each other, he said. It takes a certain kind, a very rare kind of person, to really know his own worth. But that's why we live in the world we live in. People get too caught up in who has the money, who has the power. They get jealous, they get angry, they get obsessed with politics. But people like you and me, we don't see that. We see only the power we have. That's how you live the life you want to live in the world. You always have to know you have everything you need already. I raised an eyebrow and took a generous swig of my vodka. That's quite well said, actually. I always say what I mean to say, said Kanye. I don't make mistakes. I know you're familiar with my music, he said, turning toward a stereo setup in the far corner of the room, underneath a 72-inch wall-mounted big-screen plasma TV. He pulled out his phone and entered a simple code, and music immediately came blasting from an impressive surround sound speaker system. I quickly recognized the opening bars of my favorite of Kanye's albums, and one of my favorite albums of the century up to that point, 2014's Yeezus. I can work in any style, he said. I try them all out because I'm an artist and I have to explore new territory, or else I can't survive creatively. But with this record, I set myself one task. I made a whole album in just one style, Kanye. In my first moments in Kanye's company, I had been careful not to let too much on, to size him up and act accordingly so he wouldn't be able to get in my head or get under my skin. I don't let anyone get under my skin, which is why I always shut someone down when they try to come after me on Twitter. But as I drank more vodka and Kanye showed me more of his personality, I became more comfortable. I realized we were kindred spirits. I try to borrow from lots of styles, I said. L.A. Noir, the New York comedy of manners. But usually I look to that material for language and structure and all the superficial aspects of writing. At the heart of my books is always a worldview that's personal to me. Cold, distant, uninterested in anyone else's feelings and free of any kind of argument any kind of agenda beyond expressing the cruel but unavoidable winner-take-all mentality of American life. You see, said Kanye, animated now, raising his glass and shoving his finger almost aggressively in my face. That's why I knew I had to work with you. Because you know, a man in America, especially an artist, 
He has to fight to live. He can love his people, love his family, love his woman, but that love won't survive if he can't fight to keep it alive. That's why every record I make, I don't hold on to anything unless I know it's better than anything else I've ever made, anything else I've ever heard. I fight myself. I fight against my own failures, my own mistakes, my own worst ideas, and I win. And that's why every record I make is legendary. Because legends aren't made without a fight. I nodded, dazed, in awe of Kanye in spite of myself. In every year of the 21st century, I encountered more and more public figures who managed to irreversibly dilute their creative output based on laughable notions of public decency, who wanted so badly to please the whining masses that they could only ever produce the saddest, wimpiest appeals to some seriously misunderstood collectivist impulse, who cared so much about what the seemingly innumerable masses of puny, triggered happy, so-called marginalized losers might say about them that they were, effectively, when it came to making anything resembling any kind of art, spayed and neutered. Now, finally, I was speaking face to face with a man with the strength not to give a fuck. It was utterly exhilarating. To be honest, Kanye, I said, I don't think we have much business to discuss. I think you and I have been ready to work together since long before we knew each other. I don't think I knew it until just now, but I think this meeting has always been my personal, beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy. Kanye smiled, widely now. He poured me another glass of vodka. I know that, Brett, he said. I know that, because if I know one thing, I know I've always been an American psycho. This time I smiled too. I was about to launch again into another effusive monologue, but then I heard a door open behind me. I turned to look over my shoulder, and there she was, standing in the doorway in a magnificent maternity gown, looking at once utterly worn and entirely at rest. Kim stepped calmly and gracefully toward me and then placed her hands on my shoulders. I'm sorry, I said. I didn't mean to disturb you. Kanye shook his head emphatically. And Kim laughed softly and gently. No, no, not at all, she said. Stay as long as you want. This is where you belong, Brett. You belong right here with us. Okay, tentatively titling this a Friday in late February. The party, like any other, though he's there as always, casting a dutiful, disdainful eye over the tired scene. First-year girls lurching a little off time to the music, lecherous boys closing in on their targets, Losers along the walls, not knowing better to not look lost. Brett uncrosses his arms and sighs, stands, heading for his room at the top of the stairs. He wants a cigarette. In his room, the sounds of the party are muffled, but he can clearly hear the neighbor fucking his girlfriend. Brett's dick twitches, listening to the neighbor boy grunt. 
But the girl starts shrieking and Brett rolls his eyes, though his dick is still half-cocked and hopeful. He pushes his window open. He blows smoke out the window, watching waves of heat from the ancient radiator waver in the air. Dreadful, absolutely dreadful, he thinks. Heaving himself up from his chair, cock calmed, Brett heads to the kitchen for a glass of water. As he approaches, he hears laughter like something terrible is happening, and it is. Three boys have herded a squirrel into the kitchen, flinging pots and pans at it. One boy, his name is Chad, I think, Chad hits the squirrel right in the eye with the handle of a rusty cast iron, killing it. Babette stifles a sob. Chad grabs the squirrel by the tail. Leo, the Italian everyone loves, puts out his cigarette on the animal's body, singeing the red fur black in one perfect circle. Brett gags. Burnt hair smell fills the kitchen, the hall outside the kitchen, wafting down the stairs behind him as he tries to outrun it. He slips. Someone's spilled beer on the stairs, slicing open his shin on a step. Shit, he says, feeling blood flood the fabric of his favorite pants. The sharp pain brings him to his senses. Everyone is everywhere, and the party is terrible. He heads outside, out towards the end of the world, past the stand of rocks and down the slope of the hill. The air is clean and hard and cold. He breathes a gulp, pain in his lungs like pain in his leg. Brett sits. He leans back, lying on the uneven earth. It begins to snow. The longer he's there, the less he feels until he doesn't feel a thing. He watches the snow, so many little flakes coming at him, melting like ideas. He's out there half the night and somehow doesn't die, dusting himself free of snow sometime before dawn. In the morning, the scab on Brett's shin is thick and luscious. He sits up in bed and peels the scab with relish, more blood blooming beneath. He keeps the wound open a week this way, picking and pulling. He saves the scabs in a wooden box inlaid with mother-of-pearl. When the urge strikes, he opens the box, brings a scab to his lips, nibbles, never piercing the jerky with his teeth, but feeling it give. <laughs>